0: I'm joined today by my very good friend Jason Dozier, who's running for city council in Atlanta for District Four. Yes. So, um, tell us about your race a little bit, Get, you know, because uh, we got listeners all around the state and country, so not everybody knows about what's going on with the uh, city council in
1: Atlanta. Absolutely. Uh, so, first, I'll say, <laughs> if you don't know anything about Atlanta politics, know that there are 15 city council seats. Twelve of them are divided into districts of about 40 to 45,000 residents, and I'm uh, running for District Four. And District 4 includes some of Atlanta's most historic communities. So uh, if you know where Underground Atlanta is, where I feel like most people know where Underground Atlanta is, the water Coca-Cola and Centennial Olympic Park, it extends from that side of the city all the way down towards Fort McPherson. So central southwest Atlanta includes neighborhoods like downtown, south downtown, Castleberry Hill, Mechanicsville, West End, Atlanta University Center, so Morehouse, Spelman, and Clark Atlanta University are all in the district's. Uh, Mostly Park, Astor Heights, Oakland City. I can name all yeah. all the neighborhoods. <laughs> it
0: seems like you're running to yeah. represent this. Right. place, you know in the neighborhood right. pretty well.
1: Yeah, you got a lot of
0: a lot of cool stuff in right. your district. Um, so, what have been like some of the main issues that people have been talking to you about? You know, we I was just talking to a candidate for mayor in Athens. The big thing, you know, we have is economic development. And, affordable housing issues, yeah. stuff like that. So, like, what's Atlanta facing?
1: Very similar. Uh, displacement, or at least concern around displacement, is, is at the top of everyone's minds. Uh, Atlanta, like I said, we're, these are some of the most uh, historic communities in the city, but these are also some of the most vulnerable communities in the city. The uh, median household income in District 4 is about $25,000 a year. District, or sorry, zip code 30310. Uh, most of that zip code is in district four and that was the second hardest hit zip code during the, the bottom of the uh, market crash in 2008 in the entire country so when we have a mixture of low income with a mixture of uh house foreclosures with a mixture of now uh, rapidly gentrifying communities you get a volatile mix where a lot of residents can't afford to live in these communities that they've been in for the last 30 40 years and you have a lot of new residents coming in and there's a lot of tension based around that dynamic. So displacement is definitely, I would say, at the top of people's minds. And so to combat that, I'm focused heavily on issues around affordable housing, economic development, even transportation. A lot of people talk about uh, housing in a vacuum, but transportation costs are a major component of, of what we spend our money on on a day to day basis. You might be able to afford a hundred thousand dollar house out in the suburb somewhere, but your car costs, your maintenance costs, gas, insurance, things like that drive up your cost of living. Whereas historically, if you're in a central city, you have access to public transportation, your transportation costs are low. So it balances out, or at least historically it has balanced out. So making sure that all residents have access to transportation, alternative transportation, so they can get to where they need to get to affordably, efficiently, and effectively, and safely. But definitely the cost of living and displacement and the things that are driving that are something I'm focused on with this race.
0: Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Uh, I know that you know, a big part of your district was the hardest hit by the Great Recession. I mean, that's it's pretty ginormous, because I know, you know, my own family dealt with some problems with the Great Recession and a lot of other people, so it's pretty intense to be, like, at the epicenter or something. Right. That's still an ongoing, you know, issue, and um, really worth noting the work that needs to be done in this community. Right. So, um, what made you get in the race? Because a lot of people... I know that I've been talking to lately, it's been very much a, like, Trump-centric thing. Right. Where, like, everyone's like, oh, I wanted to run against Trump, but, uh, you know, I believe that we were talking about this way before <laughs> that happened because, you know, you were, you were telling me when you were interested in this race, so I'd be really, you know, curious to, you know, talk about that because yeah. I think out of, like, the younger people, because how old are you? I'm you're,
1: 34. Yeah, you're
0: 34, so, like, a lot of the younger folks that I've been talking to that are around our age generally yeah. have been very much like, oh, I'm so pissed off about Trump, but, like, You definitely were kind of looking towards this way before that.
1: Yes. So I got really interested in this risk largely because of my community activism, my community work uh, around the Turner Field redevelopment. So Turner Field is on the edge of the district. The facilities is not specifically in the district, but it's on the other side of the road. And what happens there impacts what happens in my community. And so I organized with community members around uh, making sure that, hey, you have this 70 acre public property that's being sold to a private developer consortium uh, Carter, I'm no, sorry. Georgia State University is part of that consortium, and they're a private entity. Or I'm sorry, a public entity, so they won't pay any taxes. But then you have these private developers coming in. Most of the housing that's being built in the city right now is luxury, uh, geared towards rents of about fifteen to twenty hundred, or fifteen thousand, fifteen hundred to 20, two thousand dollars per per uh, one bedroom unit. And is is these are price ranges that are out of the scope of what's historically been in these communities. So between that, between now you have a public public institution coming in that has its own police force that will be building his own infrastructure, just trying to make sure that they include the community in conversations around development and making sure that what they're doing doesn't push residents out. So that's how I got organized initially, trying to make sure we get what's called a community benefits agreement so that the development team comes to the table with the, with the, with the neighborhoods and makes a contractual agreement saying that we will do this, we will do that. And there's an oversight process and set that way 10, 15, 20 years from now, We don't look back and say, what happened? There's a process that's been established that provides a degree of continuity because the president of Georgia State, Mark Becker, uh, Mayor Reed, uh, even our neighborhood leaders won't be the same people in charge 20 years from now, but at least there's a continuing governing structure that makes sure that there's a positive relationship between these institutions and the neighborhoods. Uh, Unfortunately, that process didn't go the way we had hoped. Uh, and just frustration with the lack of support from our public uh, agency, so Atlanta Fulton County Recreation Authority, which oversaw the sale uh, because they were the, the, the uh, facilitator of the properties. No support from City Hall, no support from the county commission. Recognizing that a lot of the pushback we got actually came from Atlanta City Council, I felt that it was time to, to essentially get new leadership at City Hall that was more community-oriented, more community-focused. And it just so happened that my city council person, has uh, a record of ethics challenges she, in terms of total fines as well as the amount of the fines. She is the highest fine person on city council. It was just, she's been in office for 24 years, and I recognize that she's been representing this community for a long time. Uh, I recognize that a lot of what's been happening in this community for the last 25 years has happened on her, on her watch for better or for worse. But with all the challenges facing the city of Atlanta right now, everything from displacement to community-oriented policing to transportation and economic development, I just felt that it was time for new blood, new leadership, new ideas to get the city of Atlanta uh, moving forward in a way that's inclusive. That recognize that all Atlantans deserve to be here. That recognize that hey, we're bringing about a million people into the into the city proper over the next thirty five years. Where can we? Where can we? How can we grow in a way that's sustainable, that's resilient, that's that is proactive and forward thinking when we think about issues related to climate change because we know. Uh, much of that growth is going to come from essentially climate change, refugees from places like Florida or Louisiana who uh, are looking for to stay in the southeast and looking and they have family ties in these communities. So we know we're going to grow, but will we grow responsibly? So we need a forward-thinking city council and I just don't think we've had that leadership and uh, that's how I ended up getting into this race. Then announced that I was running back in December, though obviously the Trump election happened in November, so it yeah. wasn't that quick of a subject. So to your point, <laughs> I had been thinking about it and talking about it and doing the research and analysis for a few months beforehand, but it, I think it has definitely uh, added a degree, uh, at least the Trump election has added a degree of, it changed the dynamic a little bit in the sense of, I think it provides an opportunity for Democrats across the country to to prove Republicans wrong in the sense of this um, narrative that Democrats can't govern. When we think about how Republicans talk about, in the state of Georgia, talk about the city of Atlanta. When we think about how Republicans nationally talk about Detroit or Chicago, there's this narrative that Democrats can't govern. We can't govern efficiently or effectively. And so, to me, it starts at the bottom, making sure that how we run our cities is is done openly, is done fairly and take that narrative away from the national discussion about how cities are operated. And I think it starts with a race like this where I'm challenging an ethically challenged incumbent who, um, like I said, with all the things she's been she's had going on, I think this is a a race that would be extremely helpful to change that narrative, to shift that narrative. So even though it was a nonpartisan race and it's not necessarily me getting into it didn't necessarily happen because of the Trump election. I think the Trump election has helped shape the narrative of the race to be bigger than just 15 or 16 neighborhoods. Uh, it, it's become about what's the future of the city of Atlanta, what does that entail, and how can we as a city uh, prove everybody wrong? And we think about when the um, uh, when President Trump was talking about the Fifth District and John Lewis's district, and how it's full of crime and it was a cesspool, and it's like this very like dystopian Mad Max imagery. <laughs> He, he talked about our city, and it's like, no, Atlanta is a wonderful city, and it's a, it's a great place to raise our family. My wife and I are, are uh, you know, we're, our kids are going to go to public school, and we're going to raise our kids here and families here, and we're going to grow with the city. And uh, I think that's the reason why we're expected to, part of the reason why we're expected to grow by another million people. Is not, it's also people who want to do the same for their families, and they want to move into cities like this. And I, I'm just, I'm just... uh I'm excited about the race because of that, and I think we'll be successful because of that.
0: Yeah, and there's definitely a lot of them to unpack in what you said. But the first thing I, I do want to hit is that one, one thing I've noticed when I talk to people about local government is that their view on local government is very much Parks and Rec. <laughs> <You>
1: know, <laughs> that,
0: like everyone thinks that like it's Leslie No, it's, you know, and then that, and that's how it all works. But that's definitely not how it works. And right. so, sort of like, what is your experience? Is like what local government can do in atlanta and like what the importance of it is yeah
1: i think most of the issues that people have with government in general are people shaking their fist at washington but i think that local government impacts your day-to-day life much more immediately than anything that happens in washington dc and i think about uh everything from trying to get speed humps in your neighborhood so that we can get people slow down because we have kids playing in the streets or how we do policing in our communities and making sure that police officers are more part of our community that's like those are day-to-day things that impact your day-to-day life transportation making sure that the bus is on time so that you can get to work to even picking up your trash or your recycling we've had times where uh you know, our, our recycling didn't get picked up for three weeks but now we're trying to we we have all this messaging about being a sustainable city, and how is it something so basic not being done in a timely manner? And so, it's 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 because it's so impactful to your day to day life. I think people just for whatever reason just don't connect the dots like that. And and, and part of it is, I think is a failure of our news media. Uh, when I think about. You know, how we cover the Trump administration or even the Trump campaign is just like 24 hours. Like, what did Trump do here? And what did he show? And I get it now, especially now he's president. I recognize that, you know, I don't want to see up brink of a nuclear war with another country, but it's definitely. There's definitely this a sense of malaise around the country about how yeah. the administration is conducting itself. Plus, but, there's
0: a you know an instance of just like you wake up every day and you're like, "What's he going to?" Exactly,
1: exactly. <laughs> but conversely, I, I think that there hasn't been any conversation as far as the the meat and potatoes of what's happening at the local level. Right, I, and there's a lot of there's the the mayoral mm-hmm. debates get covered. In, in some capacity, there's a lot of uh, stuff in the AJC about the polling and this, that, and the other. But the city council, there's been no media coverage about city council races. There's been no very little media coverage about the ordinances that city council have, has attempted to pass over the last couple of years, except for the uh, rescheduling of marijuana. Uh, that's about the closest I've seen to, to any sort of mm-hmm. regional or citywide press covering something happening at City Hall. And these are, like I said, these are issues that are truly important to people's day-to-day lives. And so I think there's been a failure of the press over the last couple of years, especially, where there's, they just kind of removed themselves from the local political debate, local political discussion. I think you've seen that with the fact that AJC no longer endorses mayoral candidates or city council candidates when historically they've done that until I think I think they decided to stop doing that with the last uh, uh, citywide elections. Yeah, I didn't even know that, Yeah. Creative Loafing started to pick up the slack, but then now uh, Creative Loafing has gone to a monthly rather than a, a weekly model, and I think part of that is part of that dynamic has been the fact that a lot of writers for these different publications jump around to the of Magazine, get picked up nationally, this and the other, but there is there hasn't been a successful bench of local writers to get us the get local political news the the attention that it deserves, I guess. <laughs> I would love to see that change, um, but I think that it's going to be tough to get people to stay engaged with what's happening in their backyards when our local press isn't covering those stories in the way they used to.
0: Yeah, I agree. I've definitely seen that problem because just thinking about the Atlanta mayor's race, you know, I've had a casual interest in it, you know, just as it being the largest city in the state in an important election, but I could not tell you a single policy stance of any of the candidates from the coverage that i have been able to see and the coverage that i see publicized the only thing i can tell you is like who's up in the polls right and like that's not good right <laughs> you know because the you know the only thing that i know is that mary norwood is definitely a republican <laughs> that's the only thing policy wise that i can tell you but yeah besides that it's just like that's that's the only thing that really has like gotten through the you know, just constant barrage of Trump news or, you know, what the governor's doing or um, what's happening in the polls. And I think that is a real loss because I think that works to obscure what we've been seeing um, happening on the local level and makes it a lot harder to get through. And then, you know, specifically on that um, story with the marijuana issue uh i saw it misreported before i saw it reported correctly. oh yes right yeah so it's just like it's it's very hard for people to know what's going on under that circumstance right. and i find that i find that frustrating one, one thing i think it'd be valuable to do at this point is you know address how we know each other and then sort of go into like you know what what you've been doing how you got here um so you know we obviously met each other under a circumstance where you were pursuing good governance of the young democrats of georgia <laughs> because um you know by far you are one of the best chief of staffs we've had i'm not just saying that you know it's just like i have a personal pet peeve which is i have i run my life with google calendar and you always have everything in the google calendar which <laughs> made me So, happy, because i never missed any call or meeting because i'm yeah. like jason's got it <laughs> so that was that was really really helpful and you know that was just one of the things that I noticed about you very, very early on was that you just sort of handled everything with efficiency and very professionally. And I was wondering how you did that. And then, <laughs> uh, you know, I think, I can't remember what you said, but it just, like, became very clearly clear to me. It's like, oh, it's because you're a veteran. It's yeah. <laughs> so like, you am going to do these things.
1: Well, uh, so, yes, I, I do think my military background... Uh, has helped me be, become more organized in a lot of my day to day. I'm not going to say all of my day to day. My yeah. wife will absolutely disagree with me if I say all of my day to day, but it's, <laughs> it's helped me become more organized in a lot of it, relying on uh, schedules and looking at your daily agenda, your weekly agenda. And there's a lot of that that happens in the military, is so where you have to make sure you're, you're I won't say it's, it's hurting cats, but you have a lot of different functional areas that have to operate in concert with one another. And there's a lot of – it's very analogous to how organizations like Young Democrats of Georgia operates where you have not only your chapters, your, your individual chapters across the state, but then you also have your various appointees, your your political directors, your communications chairs, and things like that. So make sure everybody's on the same page requires you to uh, provide people with the tools that they need to, to keep on the same page. And not to say that – I'm not going to sh- – shill for google by any means but i think they provide a very easy to use suite of tools that allow for you to do that and so whether it's google drive and making sure that because i'll say one thing that yeah your name is still on like most (laughs) (laughs) well one thing that was frustrating for me when i came on board was that from a continuity standpoint we have Multiple leaders coming in and out. You have various appointees coming in and out. Then you're trying to track people down from five, six years ago. Like, hey, that yeah. one document that you created, like, let's use the Google Drive and let's, you know, you can tie your, the Google Drive to people's email, like domain account, so that even if somebody, the specific person changes with that domain, uh, it allows for better Control measures, so you don't have to track down individual emails. It's, I don't. There's a lot of stuff that you can do to make it easier to manage a lot of different people all at once. Uh, and it's awesome to. I work in a nonprofit organization. We're a national organization. We have 100 employees, and we use Google Calendar, Google Drive, and Google uh, Sheets and Google Docs to to manage everything across the organization. And to me, is is it, there are tools out there that even if you don't like Google, there's Dropbox, there's uh, the Office 365 suite. The key is to keep everybody on the same page. I think that people are afraid to use technology to help benefit them in that regard. And I feel like... And are there places you're seeing where, like, the city council's not doing that, where you think
0: they could be? And, you know, because we were just talking about the problem of not being able to get information out. Yeah. And people not understanding what's going on. Exactly. So are there places where you could see that?
1: Yes, going? absolutely. It wouldn't be, like, a Google or Office thing. Yeah, but, of course. <laughs> but we have massive databases of everybody who... For instance, one example is we had a boil water advisory a couple months ago. We know where every person who is on the city water system where they live, we have their phone numbers because you've got to pay your water bill. this and the other. And it's frustrating that when we get the word out, when there's a boil water advisory, we, we default to, let's post it on Facebook and social media, maybe do a press release, press statement to the news media and hope they get the word out. And that's it. Well, you have people's phone numbers. You have their addresses. Why can't we go door to door? Why can't we call people to let them know there's an issue and then call them back to let them know? We have to force people to opt in to this Notify ATL system, which is great, but I feel like we don't do enough marketing or branding around this mm-hmm. service that exists, we don't do enough about, uh, around uh, letting people know how to get this information. Not everybody, especially our older residents, very few of them have email addresses, let alone yeah. our own Facebook or Twitter. And so I think... And being in campaign
0: world, we both know that robocalls are very cheap. Right. So it's not that hard to exactly.
1: do. Exactly. So it, to me, it's a function of making sure or that the city is using every means possible to get the word out to its constituents, to its citizens. There's even like when there's, a, when there's a community meeting down the street is uh it's not hard to canvas the community to go door-to-door let people know what's happening and how to get involved in the process and and making sure that's a priority from a budgeting standpoint because i get it there's personnel challenges there's there's funding challenges but prioritize that in the budget process to make sure that that people are getting adequate community engagement whenever decisions are being made i think that's one thing that we have to do better as a city is making sure that communities have a voice in this process. You can't just say oh well there's a, there's a meeting we posted a we, we we had a public posting at City Hall you should have known about this meeting that affects your day to day especially when people have work and this time and the other. Even basic things like live streaming more than just City Hall uh, meetings live streaming, committee meetings, live streaming MPU meetings and all these different layers of governance that exist in the city of Atlanta try to get help Become, get people more engaged in the process. And so I think uh, recognizing that we have these databases that exist already. Like I said, we know where people live. We know what their phone number. We know how to get a hold of them. Because if you don't pay your water bill, you better be sure that the city's going to come after you. Right. Uh, let's be proactive in getting information, the right information to people. Um, and I think uh, that's where that degree of planning and preparation and organizing comes in, comes in and becomes helpful, is recognizing what tools you have available and uh, maximizing those tools and making sure that you can get the word out in the most efficient and effective way possible.
0: Yeah, so one of the things (laughs) I realize I didn't know is, like, how long have you actually, like, lived in this district? And sort of, like, are you from Atlanta originally? I'm
1: from from Atlanta originally. Mm -hmm. uh, Born and raised here, or raised in Metro (laughs) Atlanta. But it was funny, is my my friends who went to high school in Atlanta Public Schools, well, always remind me of that fact um, but uh, I was born at what used to be Georgia Baptist Hospital it's Atlanta Medical Center now it's off the of Boulevard and I was raised on the east side of town so I grew up off of Farrington Road and South Cab. Uh then we moved further down in, towards uh, Evans Mill Road uh, but South Cab is where I was raised uh, left the city about 11 years ago uh, let me let me backtrack a little bit. I went to college up north in Ohio. I wanted to get out of Atlanta, get out of yeah, Georgia. Ohio,
0: that's, that's pretty far away. So yeah, I, yeah. Want, I
1: wanted to try something a little bit different, long story short. And I ended up going to school up there. Went to school to be a teacher. Recognized that teaching was not my forte. I came back home to Georgia and ended up working in a warehouse for a year, year and a half. Uh, and then I started going to the military because I didn't know what I wanted to do with myself and what I wanted to do in my life. That was about six months, or sorry, six years of, of, uh, of uh, my life that, that I served. Uh served overseas in Iraq, Afghanistan, and then came back five years ago, roughly. Kind of hit the ground running. I, I, I found my purpose. I wanted to come back to my hometown and make sure Atlanta. Stood the test of time. I'd I'd been in places like Baghdad and Kabul. And these cities had been on this earth for 2,000, 3,000 years. And Atlanta has only been around for 150, 160. So what would be around in the next 1,000 years? And so I wanted to make sure I grew my city or helped grow my city in a way that would allow us to stand the test of time. Moved to Athens for a year. Went to grad school at University of Georgia. Go Dawgs. (laughs) Go Dawgs. And then uh, moved back to Atlanta uh, in 2012. Yeah, I've been in this community for about two years, about two years now. I've been in Atlanta my whole life, and I love this city. And I want to make sure the city grows and develops, becomes a world class city. We say we've been saying we are for the last fifty years.
0: Yeah, you know what you said. Brings an interesting thought in my mind, which is, you know, everyone thinks of Atlanta as an old city. Right. This, it is a pretty old city. I mean, like, you know, comparing to league, I'm 25. So, to yeah. like, me, and Atlanta is like, we're really old. But, like, you're just saying, like, you've been to, like, Baghdad, which yeah. is a city that's, like, existed for, like, thousands of years. Yeah. And so, like, are there any similarities to, like, the problems you saw there that you see in Atlanta or any, you know, significant differences? Because we always, you know, we always talk about, it, like, Iraq and Afghanistan, yeah. like, the abstract, like, this conflict. But the thing is that it's, you know, at the end of the day, they deal with a lot of the same problems we do. Like, they, you know, they deal with, you know, their trash getting picked up. Right. And they deal with their government. Well, there's, not, there's definitely a, a
1: hierarchy of needs thing happening where people still need to be fed. People still need to be sheltered and housed. People still need work. And by not having those needs met, that leads to to second and third order effects. So, I guess, negative externalities is what economists would call it. But, yeah. Uh, you know, I think about as we're fighting an insurgency in Iraq, for instance, and a lot of kids who are frustrated, teenagers and younger adults who are frustrated with the lack of opportunities in their communities turn towards these organizations who provide that in various capacities. But then you look at gangs here in Atlanta. You look at kids who do petty crime because there's nothing, there are no programs available for them after school. So I think there's a correlation there. Uh, there's a correlation with the fact that when you have A corrupt and inept government, then it leads to people not trusting the powers that be, and 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 enforcing people to or compelling people to be removed from the the community engagement and civic process processes, I should say. And I think I see that happening here, where people feel government is ineffective, doesn't work for them, so they don't vote, they don't go to community meetings because it's never government's never work for them. And so uh, I it I think those are really where those the bigger parallels are. The extremes are completely different. I mean yeah. uh, the, the scale the, they, they, is quite significantly there, different there
0: of the problems right. you're
1: facing, you know. But I, th- I always look back on my experience in Baghdad in particular as being, you know, what happens when that's what happens when you have a government that is corrupt and that if you let corruption and bribery go and let and let it continue to fester you know then that, the second and third order effects of what you see in back or what you see in back then and then here in atlanta we're in the midst of a bribery and corruption scandal at city hall two people have already gone to jail there's uh there's been a lot of press about the these these contract procurement processes and um that's i think those experiences that i've those experiences that i've had overseas have impacted my viewpoint about the need to have independent ethics review processes and making sure that we have transparent government making sure that we post checkbooks level spending online so that the world can see where all of our money is going and where our priorities are being being uh, placed. And those specific policy recommendations or policy positions, like I said, I'm passionate about them because I see I've seen what's what's happened in other countries where they failed to get it right or because of the power vacuum that we help create. We see the extreme of 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 them being unable to get it right. That's that's really, like I said, impacted kind of my worldview on those sorts of issues, related to transparency and ethics in government.
0: What what do you think makes has made like the city council get to this point where the corruption is so prevalent? Because you know that is sort of the you know, running joke almost about Atlanta and DeKalb yeah. and, you know, half of the people end up in jail. Like, why Why is that, like, culture there? You know? yeah. And I say that as someone who's very, very ignorant, you know, to Atlanta City politics because I'm from South Georgia originally and yeah. I've only been in Athens, so I've not done the deep dive that you've done. Yeah. So it's just like, is there something that you think is making it prevalent, you know, or is it just a couple bad apples that get blown out of proportion?
1: I think it is a mixture. I think there's a lot of people at City Hall who are, are passionate about public service or passionate about giving back to, in many cases, they are Atlanta natives who want to give back to a city that helped raise them. And I see the same thing even for our elected officials. A lot of them are people who are passionate, may not be effective in what they do, but they're passionate about the work that they do. Right. And I think those few bad apples um, definitely cast a huge shadow on the city entirely. I'll I'll also add, though, that those few bad apples are allowed to exist because, as a city, I don't think we take those issues seriously enough across the board. Uh, I think City of Atlanta has a Nepotism problem, meritocracy in terms of of uh, hiring from the outside, especially. But I think that these things aren't valued in a way that they are in other cities. And so it's a lot of who, you know, versus what, you know, Um, I think that Atlanta has a problem with and from uh, the city of Atlanta has a cultural issue related to in different departments. I'm not going to say it's across the board, but certain departments like Watershed is notorious for being. Uh, ha- having a bad internal culture which has pushed a lot of people out I hear stories about bullying and this that, and the other and a lot of that has to do with the nepotism conversation that i brought up before but I think for, for for too long the city has turned a blind eye to those things it's like hey as long as the basic the very main, basic minimum is being done then everything's fine the city's doing its, its job but one thing I've always advocated for is investing in more training and better training for employees. I'm a big believer in second chances. So I am not. I don't think we should fire everybody overnight in a right. clean house. But I think professional development training related to customer service or ethics or things like that, I think you can help strengthen the, the systems that have already existed and are already in place. And so I, I don't think that... It's so bad. If it was, if I don't think we're as bad as some of our sister jurisdictions, I put it that way. I don't yeah. think Emory would be clamoring to join the city of Atlanta if we we're as bad as our sister jurisdictions. But we do have problems. And I think they're solvable problems. But I think that also requires a uh, focus investment from city council and city hall in general to make sure that we can address those problems. Nepotism and culture are i think the two biggest issues that we're we're running into in city hall.
0: Yeah, so you know, let's assume you win, and then we have this conversation again. If you're running for re-election or you're on your way out, you know, what what would be the things that you hope you could have accomplished for your community, and you know, the changes you would be seeing?
1: Yeah. Uh, one is helping to enact a robust suite of policy tools to allow for people to. to be more resistant to the effects of displacement. It's a very word salad thing to say. <laughs> yeah. but I, I'm a big believer that no individual policy is panacea. No one policy is going to be a cure-all for, for uh, any sort of issue that we face in the city. But I think that while working in concert, I think we can make a big dent into the negative effects of, of gentrification, negative effects of of the affordable housing issue that we have in the city. That means looking at how we do land use and zoning so that you know we, we can ensure that developers have a set-aside for affordable housing units in some of our neighborhoods that are being rapidly gentrified. That means make sure we invest in community land trusts so that publicly owned land that exists, we can sell it for a dollar to a community land trust or land uh, land bank, and that, that we can invest in those programs so that They can stabilize land costs in these communities so that people can live in homes affordably. That means investing in homeowner assistance programs so that people who are renters have a pathway to homeownership. That means looking at our our land use and zoning so that we can build denser communities without radically shifting the, the nature of the community. We don't need to build a 600 unit multifamily apartment building in a neighborhood like West End or Oakland City. But we can build a duplex here and a triplex there, right? in a unit garden cell apartment there to help m- meet the uh, housing challenges that the city has in a way that meets people where they are. Not everybody wants to live in one of two different housing types. But the way we do policy in the city, we're forcing a lot of residents to choose between either buying a house or renting a house or renting a big apartment unit in Midtown. And so modifying our zoning so that we can build new housing stock that because people's choice in the matter, I think that would help alleviate the supply and demand issue that are forcing people to buy houses when they may not actually want to take that big step. Yeah. Not I, the most articulate I, well, way to put that, well, but... yeah,
0: but I find, I find it really interesting because it's like Athens has a very similar problem and the, the parallel that I see between the problem that Athens has and the problem that Atlanta has, it seems when I look at other cities that are in the South that are like comparable to uh, both cities... There's a lot of conversation about like their 20-year plans, you know, like you know the plans that they came up with like in the 90s that they're now seeing the dividends of, you know, like cities that you know like Houston and Durham and then you know Raleigh that like decided a long time ago like we're going to just invest a ton of money in our transit and you're going to be able to ride a train everywhere, and, right. you know, Like and the zoning's going to be far more dense and stuff like that, and you know, like they're seeing the dividends of that do you have any inclination of why it's been so hard for these major Georgia cities to come up with these plans and follow through on them? Yeah. Cause you know, at least on the Athens side of the conversation, I know we have plans out the wazoo. <laughs> we have a billion plans, yeah. but we've never implemented any of them. And we're constantly planning to plan about planning, planning commissions, you know, right. like that's, that's the sense that like, I get. And I've just never really understood what the hesitance has been to like, come up with a plan, And have a leadership team that's like, we're going to push this plan really hard and get it done. Because I have no idea what the future of Athens or Atlanta or any of the other major Georgia cities are beyond, we have problems and we should fix them. Right? (laughs) Like, there's no, like, we're going to do X, Y, and Z
1: to fix those problems. Yeah. Well, here in Georgia, a lot of that has to do with the fact that Georgia is a very property owner-friendly state. And so that limits the amount of tools available to our cities to address things in a way that they've done up north in New York and Chicago related to, like, I talk about inclusionary zoning, and that's essentially through our land use ordinances. We say that, hey, developer, you have to have a set aside for affordable housing units in your development. The jury, the jury still out whether we can do mandatory inclusionary zoning saying that any development in this city that you have to have a set aside because then the state of Georgia says, well, that's a uh, takings and that's illegal. And so, uh, that, then you have to incent those developers with something to help encourage them to do that. You can't do rent controls here in the state of Georgia. Uh, you can't, with, with code enforcement and blighted property, one thing I didn't talk about with like where I said no policy is, par- one policy is panacea. There's a lot of vacant and blighted buildings in Southwest Atlanta that could be homes for people. Five, ten, year, even next year, if you get the right investment to those properties, and so.
0: Yeah, uh, quick pause there because blight is a term that is like used a lot, but I don't think people actually know what it means. Yeah. And I just I was looking over one of your yard signs. And you yeah. have bite blight" on it. So, like, what is blight? <laughs> Someone who Pe- has is so bold to put blight yeah. on their yard signs. Pe- what is blight? Pe-
1: people who live there next to blight know it. It's like yeah. you know when you see it. Blight is uh, if you think about a house. That's the best example of a house that's like has a hole in the roof. It's unoccupied. It's boarded up. The grass in the front is yeah, is as high as a person. Right. Uh, that's those are the more common examples of it that you see. Um, it's typically, essentially, the, the best way I can put it is a, it's a derelict structure that hasn't had the necessary maintenance or, or love and attention that it needs to be habitable. There are, a lot of those structures exist in our communities in southwest Atlanta. Like I said, a lot of it is a function of the housing crisis. A lot of foreclosures happen. Uh, a lot of those properties got snatched up by banks, by individual investors, and people have just sat on those properties for the last uh, 10 years and not putting any money in essentially waiting for the land values to appreciate and then full tear down and rebuild another property on top of it. The policies in the city, or I'm sorry, in the state around that are very, like I said, a very property owner oriented state. And so even if there's a code enforcement violation, because clearly these properties are violating code, yeah. the city can only find them up to a thousand dollars. I think is what the number is, but uh, typically, there's a $100 fine per violation, and it mm-hmm. takes about three or four months per violation. The The city doesn't do enough follow-up with each of these properties to keep citing them. If I'm just sitting on that property, $100 is nothing, and probably right. I'm not even going to pay it. I'm just going to wait until now, so there will likely be then become a lien on my property, but... Only a thousand dollars when I'm selling this property for for cash to somebody else, and they'll pay it all right. And it's, long story short, it doesn't do enough. What we can, our fine structure, our code enforcement structure, doesn't disincentivize disincentivize the maintaining of these sorts of properties all over the city. Whereas I feel like in other states and other communities, they're able to to maximize the use of these properties because you have fine structures in place. You have criminal prosecution opportunities in place for people who don't address these things. And um, so that means that a city needs to lobby the state to gain additional powers to Effectively address these situations, and I don't think we've done enough of that.
0: Yeah, so two two more policy issues I want to talk about that because they're the only two that I've seen actually break through that you know media dark zone about the you know city of Atlanta politics. Uh, the first one is I know that Mayor Reed had said that he wanted to make Atlanta. 100% green energy mm-hmm. by what was it? 20, 2035. Yeah, 2035. So what do you know about that? How likely do you think that is to be? I imagine that you agree with that policy. <laughs> I agree, I I agree with you. that
1: policy. I don't see it as being... Fee- so the... the I think it was 2025 for all city proper or 2030 for all city-owned properties right. and 2035 for all... In the city, right? All of the city. I think the former is doable because the city has a lot of control over how properties are run the, the, from an energy efficiency standpoint and basic things like chase the led to even uh, installing solar panels and things like that. City has a lot of, uh, of, um, oversight on those sorts of things. As far as, pro- uh, everything being, stated, I think that's a wonderful goal, but I don't, unless we put money behind it to, help subsidize the installation of solar or even just basic things like helping people capture stormwater runoff or things like that unless we are putting the money behind a funding or financing structure in place behind it i don't think that the city will get to that overall goal in that time period as far as like the from the privately owned properties but i think that also means working with partners and being proactive with working with the Coca-Cola of the world and the UPSs of the world and the major real estate holding entities in this city to to just from a civic, a corporate civic um, companies just being good neighbors and, and uh, leveraging those relationships to make sure that they're on board and they're encouraging, they're upgrading to league standards and this, that, and the other. Um, so I think... That's part of the equation as well. It's not just the city saying you have to do this because we won't be able to do that with our, with our private partners, but working with our private partners and getting them on board. It's the same thing with uh, when we talk about I- inclusion and tolerance for the LGBT community here in the city. A city city are extremely, the city as a self has taken a stance that we are going to remain a beacon of tolerance in the state of Georgia for the LGBT community, even though we've had Issues related to policing and this and the other. But as a city as a whole, that's kind of been our vision. And I feel like our business community has bought into that as well. And you see the pushback that we have with the RIF for legislation that has been attempted to be passed at the Gold Dome. Uh, It's that sort of relationship where you partner with the business community to have a larger vision as far as what the city could or should be doing with these particular types of issues. So, yeah, I think that's, that's the way to do it. I don't see it being feasible to say that, hey, every office building every homeowner you have to you're going to be 100 percent renewable right when there's no incentives or subsidies behind it it's just going to be tough yeah
0: the other issue is the one that i think literally every georgian thinks about with atlanta and that's transportation (laughs) because even even me in camden county you know i was just a young lad i'm like i don't want to go atlanta there's too many cars there um so the first thing i want to ask is How does that affect your district specifically? You know, because every community has a different transportation issue, but, you know, so you have a very specific part of Atlanta. So, like, how does that affect your district? And then we can kind of talk about,
1: like, the bigger picture. Yeah. Let's start start with your guys. So, specifically in the district, there's a challenge in the fact that many of our residents don't have access to a car, don't have access to a motor vehicle, rely on uh, public transportation for just basic services, getting to the store, uh, getting... To school, to daycare, everything in between. Getting to work, obviously, uh, it's even a bigger issue when you consider that there's a number of jobs training training programs that exist in the city of Atlanta, that exist in the state of Georgia, and even from, so, from, there's an economic development argument to be made that if, if people aren't able to get to where they need to get to, then then we all suffer. Our community suffers. So that's where I think there's a huge gap because so many people, forty percent of our residents of Southwest Atlanta, are, are fall under that umbrella. And if we don't continue to invest in transportation, alternative transportation opportunities for these folks, then they're going to get left out when all this, this change continues to happen in the city. Um, and so for me, that means investing in basic things like bike lanes and sidewalks. It means investing or partnering with MARTA so that we can upgrade our bus infrastructure. Our bus stops are just, right now just a pole in the dirt with a little MARTA flag on it. Well, let's build more bus benches and bus shelters so that people can take public transportation with dignity. So it encourages more people to take public transportation because congestion is going to be the... or it's always going to be congestion. Uh,
0: It's always going to be getting worse. It's always going to be, right.
1: It's it's like New York and London have world-class public transportation infrastructure, but they're always congested in terms of vehicle transportation. Mm -hmm. That's the nature of the beast. Every city in the world has, you think of cities in China where they're spending billions every year on upgraded transportation infrastructure and vehicle congestion still exists. Congestion is always going to exist, so let's invest in the alternative so that people can get to where they need to safely, efficiently, and effectively. And like I said, that includes building uh, sidewalks because sidewalks don't exist in many of our neighborhoods. You go to communities like Venetian Hills, in the southwestern part of the district. And entire streets don't have sidewalks at all. And you have kids playing in the street and you have cars going 100 miles an hour. Uh, I'm a big believer in investing in bicycle transportation infrastructure because people who ride bikes, ride them to work, ride them to uh, school, and and, uh, bicycles are uh, extremely cost-efficient ways to get around. Whereas you don't have to pay bicycle insurance. You don't have to Get your get tags for your bicycle, which those costs are prohibitive for people as well. You consider too that people who make mistakes, whether it's they get into DUI, they get they make it hard for you. To, there's a there's a very long lengthy and bureaucratic process when it comes to car ownership that is prohibitive for many people. So let's invest in those alternatives so that people can get to where they need to get to. In a safe and efficient, cost-efficient manner, and I think that's where the city played a role in that discussion.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm happy you bring up the bike thing because I don't think anybody would think like people bike around Atlanta. You know, like just from driving. You know, my drive here, your place, is just like almost exclusively on the interstate. It's just like you'd never. Most people, I don't think most people would ever think that like bike lanes are something that people in Atlanta could actually use and want. And the sidewalk thing too is also one that does not come up.
1: Well, I think it's one of those things where if you build the Infrastructure, you encourage more use of it, right? Right now, I mean, I biked in bucket before. which is interesting; it's an interesting experience. But, but it's just a matter of building infrastructure so that people can do it safely, because then it's going to be you're encouraged more use. The same thing is, is is that that logic works the same way as it does with the widening highways. Of so right now, if I were to make the connector 20 lanes across, which I feel like we're almost there at this point, that will reduce congestion for a while, but it encourages more people then to drive down the highway, oh, look how easy this is, and then boom, it's called induced demand. So it's the same thing with bicycle infrastructure. If you make bicycle infrastructure, pedestrian infrastructure more ubiquitous and safer, then it encourages more people to use the infrastructure that exists. And I think that's the way to go with future infrastructure investments in the city.
0: Yeah, so any, uh, any thoughts on just sort of the bigger picture in Atlanta? Yeah, uh,
1: I, I think uh, we need to do, better, do a better job of lobbying our state legislature to, to make sure that we can get everybody on the same page when it comes to transportation. I think many, especially Republican legislators, are starting to see the light. Surprising to see people like David Rawson are coming out in support of investing in public transportation because essentially, we've now that we, especially the, I feel like the Amazon HQ2 thing is kind of the wake up call is that there's a direct correlation between transportation and economic development, right? We want to attract new business, we want to attract new, uh, just, just that the that that windfall that comes from that, and transportation is the best way to do it, and public transportation is the best way to do it until we get our. Regionally, you have what fifty something semi municipal jurisdictions in Metro Atlanta. We need leadership from the state to get everybody on board when it comes to uh, investment in public transportation. The piecemeal approach that we've been doing for decades I don't think is ineffective or it's, I don't think it's effective. I'm glad that the city of Atlanta voted to increase the the sales tax to fund an additional two point five billion dollars in MARTA expansion here specifically in the city of Atlanta. A lot of people that ride Marta, ride up to and ride up to Roswell, have to do a transfer to get to Cumberland, have to do uh, a uh, transfer to get to Lawrenceville or Norcross. And so yeah. there has to be a regional, there has to be regional, better le- regional leadership. From the state to make sure that all of these different jurisdictions are on the same page this is probably going to be one of the most important elections we've ever had in yeah atlanta. do you, do you in want Al-
0: to talk do you want to talk about like your opponents and anything that you think yeah you know, not specifically just yeah. like what differentiates
1: you so this is one of the most important elections that we've ever had in the city of atlanta uh we have we're going to have a new mayor we're going to have a new city council president seven of the 15 city council seats are open the other eight of the other eight, seven have challenges, so we're going to have a brand new and more independent city council. And so that's why it's important that we get this right, particularly with this election, because District 4, like I said, has some of the most vulnerable citizens in the city of Atlanta. We have a lot of new residents. I'm a big believer in development without displacement. I'm a big believer about mixed-income communities, so I welcome new residents, but I want to make sure that the older residents also have a seat at the table. That's why, for my elections, it's important to get it right. And I think that, for me, my... Individual experience, my individual skill set makes me uniquely qualified to take on those challenges on day one. I served in the army for six years, served in Iraq and Afghanistan. I served as a platoon leader, served as a staff officer, so I know what it's like to operate in a situation where people's lives are on the line, people's quality of life is on the line as well, and to try to make decisions to help benefit communities that have been um, maligned and discarded and disenfranchised for for, for for generations in some cases. So I know what it's like to try to deliver services in that regard. I'm a director of a national nonprofit organization, so I know what it's like to manage, oversee large-scale operations that impact people's ability to find work, people's ability to be successful in the job market. Uh, and I, just, I have a wide range of experience to do that. I have also uh, have a strong community resume trying to fight for people and trying to keep them from being displaced, trying to make sure we have better community policing in our neighborhoods. I was the vice president for our neighborhood association. I was on the steering committee for the Turner Field Community Benefits Coalition. And I think that vision has resonated with many of our more established institutions that have existed in the city and the state for some time. I've been endorsed by the IVPO, the Police Officers Union. I've been endorsed by the IAFF, the Firefighters Union. I've been endorsed by AFME, which is the largest public employee union in the country. The, I've been endorsed by the Georgia Association of Black Women Attorneys. I've been endorsed by the Georgia Stonewall Democrats. Um, been endor- I, uh, the, Our business community through uh, what they call the Committee for Better Atlanta, evaluated every single candidate for mayor city council president city council and we were rated i was rated the best qualified candidate in the district for a race i had the second highest score out of 61 people running for city council across the city and so the work we've been putting in the conversations we've been having the ideas that we brought to the table have resonated We've been validated in terms of our vision for Atlanta, and I hope our voters recognize that when we go to the polls on November 7th.
0: Yeah, well, the thing I always like to wrap up these conversations with is I like to do what I call flipping the table and have you ask me a question. So <laughs> now you get to be interviewer and ask me something.
1: How easy was it for you to get here from Athens this morning?
0: I See, that's a great question, actually, because you probably think I took 316, but I didn't. I take I 20. I take okay. this, like, long, you know, right, way around and Conyers and Winder. I go through that way because the fact is I know had I gone through 316, that's one of the most dangerous roads in the entire state and country. There's mm-hmm. an average of two wrecks a day there. I've almost fallen asleep in my car only two times, and both were on 316. Right. And it's like a very boring route, and there's so many stops, stoplights and all that kind of stuff. And then I know that instead of being 10 minutes late, I probably would have been 20 minutes late when I took there because the traffic is always congested and unpredictable and just stressful. Right. Um, So in that sense, I already had to take a less direct but usually quicker route by taking I-20. And then... When I did do that, it was not as bad, but it, you know, it was still pretty heavy traffic and it would have been a lot better if I could have just ride a train. So I could have done something besides be in my car, uh, get frustrated (laughs) trying to get here. That is just such a frustration coming to Atlanta because, you know, we're all busy people and it's a near guarantee that you're going to be late because of, congestion issues or just you know traffic control issues right. or, you know because I, I even joke to you on my way here and it's like i'm hitting every red light yeah. you know and so it's just yeah the drive is always frustrating to me and it's uh one of the main reasons i don't come to atlanta more <laughs> so, <laughs> well, we're it, yeah, so we're gonna change make- that yeah so um hope so but uh thank you jason for being on here thank good, you good to see you again yes. and, uh i wish you uh, uh luck in your
1: race all right thank you so much our show for the week if you like what you heard share the show with a friend and go over to itunes and give us a rating or a review it really helps other people find our show we'll be back with another episode of peach pod next week until then take care y'all